The Jod Cost, Better Late Than Never, with Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasanu, Samuel Leski, Tian Bezaitnot, Fiona Porter, and Amy Sudodds. The Jod Cost, May 2021 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jod Cost. I'm Tian Bezaitnot, and joining me in the studio is Fiona Porter. And by studio, we of course mean uh, our separate bedrooms, uh, several thousand kilometres apart, would that be accurate? Yeah, oh, I'm in South Africa at the moment. And, mm-hmm. and I am still in Manchester. In Manchester, lucky you. Um, <laughs> I don't know, you might be getting the better weather of it. Yeah, it's the, sort of the, the tail end of summer now, and we're really desperately hanging on to it. But it's been, it's been nice not to be in Manchester in the rain for a while. <laughs> Uh, in the show this time, Fiona Porter interviews Bert Hawkins and Matt Morgan about their work at the NRAO, and Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasanu, and Samuel Leski take a look at what's happening in the May night sky. But first, before all that, here's Amy Sadodz with the month's news. In astronomy news this May, we have a gravitationally lensed baby galaxy, flight on Mars, the biggest ever stellar flare, and some groundbreaking gravitational wave predictions. The ALMA Lensing Cluster Survey team have found a young galaxy 100 times smaller than the Milky Way. The galaxy dates back to the early universe, around 900 million years after the Big Bang. It was discovered using the gravitational lens effect and will be useful for improving our understanding of the early stages of galactic evolution. Right now, a lot of early galaxies are difficult to detect due to low brightness levels that are hard to pick up. Gravitational lensing can help with this by magnifying that brightness, enabling astronomers to pick out the properties of young or faint galaxies. The team used the observational power of ALMA to hunt down many galaxies from the early universe amplified by gravitational lensing. Studying early galaxies enables astronomers to better understand the formation and evolution process of galaxies, and studying smaller galaxies widens the sample and representation of early galaxies observed. The observation programme took 95 hours and studies 33 galaxy clusters. The infant galaxy found was lensed by one of these galaxies. The total mass is around 3 billion times the mass of the Sun and appears to be rotating. Young galaxies often have random, chaotic motion, and this is the smallest young galaxy found to have ordered rotating motion. The observation challenges traditional galactic evolution framework and sets the bar for future faint galaxy observations. At the end of April, NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter made history by becoming the first aircraft to make a powered, controlled flight of another planet. The helicopter is solar-powered and took flight at a time calculated to have good flight conditions. The craft reached a maximum altitude of 3 metres and hovered for 30 seconds. After 40 seconds of flight, Ingenuity touched back down to the Martian surface. The flight was piloted with onboard control systems, making it completely autonomous. Ingenuity is a NASA technology demonstration project, which carries no scientific instruments. Its sole purpose was to determine whether flight and aerial exploration is possible on Mars. Sitting at 49 centimetres tall and 1.8 kilos, the aircraft has provided NASA with a so-called Martian Wright Brothers moment. The project has taken a little over six years and has battled low gravity and low atmospheric pressure, which meant achieving rotorblade flight has been particularly challenging. The Perseverance rover acted as a relay between Ingenuity and Earth during the flight, and was even able to capture the iconic moment on camera. There are plans for a second test flight which will further educate NASA scientists about flight on Mars. Next, a team from the University of Colorado Boulder have recently released their results from an observation of the largest flare ever recorded. 
Proxima Centauri, our nearest star, is a red dwarf that sits just four light years from our sun and has one-eighth of its mass. For the study, astronomers performed multi-wavelength observations on the star, with nine different telescopes, including the Hubble Space Telescope, ALMA and TESS, for a total of 40 hours. One flare they observed is one of the most powerful ever seen. In the UV, the star increased in brightness by almost 15,000 times over seven seconds, over 100 times the size of the largest flare ever observed from the Sun. The flare was also observed in the millimetre range, which is the first evidence of a flare in this wavelength. It is predicted these millimetre bursts occur when a star's magnetic field is changing rapidly. Proxima Centauri hosts at least two of its own planets, including one in its habitable zone. Any organisms on these planets would have to be extremely resilient to survive one of these flares, never mind the multiple that occur every day. In fact, many exoplanets have been found around red dwarfs, which tend to be more active than other types of stars, which means they flare more frequently. The observations from Proxima Centauri opened doors for improved investigations into stellar flares and further thought about whether life could survive in such a hostile environment. And finally, a study from a team of researchers at UCL has simulated 25,000 scenarios of collisions between black holes and neutron stars. The goal of the simulation was to determine how many collisions are expected to be detected by instruments on Earth by 2030. It has been found that up to 3,000 space-time ripples could be observed by instruments, and 100 of these would also have observable bursts of light. Observations from black hole neutron star collisions are useful as they can help to estimate the universe's rate of expansion. The simulation looked at many different gravitational wave-producing collisions to estimate how many would be strong enough to observe. Currently, there are four observatories that are able to detect gravitational waves, with a fifth on the way. As well as giving a benchmark for the rate of discovery of collisions, the simulations also provide a motivation to improve models of these events. Improved theory, paired with accurate observations of massive collisions in space, could be the key to unpacking the mysteries of the Hubble constant, leading to huge advancements in astrophysics. And that's the astronomy news for this month. Thanks for that, Amy. Uh, now, I interview Bert Hawkins and Matt Morgan about their work at the NRAO. Hello, this is Fiona Porter, and today I am joined remotely by Matt Morgan and Bert Hawkins, who are both with the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Uh, so to kick us off, uh, could you tell me a little bit about what you both do at the NRAO? All right, um, I'm Matt Morgan. I'm a research engineer at the uh, Central Development Lab in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, I head the Integrated Receiver Development Group, which is a group focused on uh, integrating analog, digital, and photonic technologies uh, to build radio astronomy uh, instrumentation, really, for the next generation of radio telescopes. Um, we do a number of different things in this, in this uh, group. Uh, we develop instrumentation. Uh, we did some development for ALMA. We, we uh, are working on NGVLA prototype designs. Um, we are working on some spectrum monitoring uh, hardware for uh, some future uh, radio dynamic zone instrumentation. We also uh, splinter off some technologies from time to time uh, for commercialization, which is kind of a new uh, thrust at NRAO, and uh, that's been exciting for us. So we've we found a lot of a lot of the stuff that we develop for radio astronomy actually has broader applications uh, outside of just uh, radio astronomy, which is an interesting uh, sort of a side aspect of the work that we do. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I'm Bert Hawkins. I'm the director of the Central Development Lab. Uh, Matt's team is, is part of our uh, laboratory. 
the CDL has the mission under NRAO to develop the next generation of technology for radio telescopes. So we work across a broad front of technologies from the front of the telescope at the antenna all the way to the back end uh, to the correlator. We're developing a number of new technologies these days and improving current ones. Uh, CDL consists of about uh, 50 engineers and technicians and uh, specialists. All right, lovely. So to kick us off, we've had uh, some very interesting talks from both of you at the department's colloquium. Uh, one of the things which I find particularly interesting is that obviously as a facility, you are up and running again. And because of that, you needed to put some stuff into place to make sure the facility is safe for working while COVID's on. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, uh, Tony Beasley, the director of NRAO, uh, made a call early on uh, to keep the observatory open. One of the parts of uh, NRAO is a, a very large baseline ray, and it has a mission uh, with national implications. Uh, and places like CDL and other parts of the observatory support uh, that part of the um, of the observatory. So we had a national mission to keep going, and we also wanted to keep the VLA uh, running as well. So we did have an infectious disease uh, policy in place uh, when this started. So we started out uh, with a skeleton crew uh, at all the sites just making sure all the essential services were running. And then those who could work from home were directed to work from home. Uh, and that started in mid-March and it went pretty well after a, a rough start. Everyone figured out how to Zoom and work remotely. But we realized we had to get uh, the folks in who could not work from home. These are technicians and bench engineers and things like that. So working very closely with our safety officer uh, and all the managers across the observatory, uh, we came up with, with protocols uh, to protect people. Uh, and we started slow and very carefully. Um, at CDL, for example, we, we mapped our facilities against the HVAC zones, the, the heating and ventilation zones that we had. And we thought we would uh, start off by having just one worker in each HVAC zone. That way they could work without a mask and there would be no chance of contamination. So that started us off on what we called our return to full operations mode. Uh, we had several phases planned for that. Phase one was what I just described, bringing in people a few at a time and keeping them safe. We got better and better at this, and as we learned more and more about the virus and people got better at uh, following the protocols, we were able to bring even, even more people in. We reconfigured lab spaces. Unused offices were converted to labs. By the use of masks and other things, we were able to get more than one person in an HVAC zone. Our safety officer even bought a supplied air system, which we affectionately call a moon suit where you don a hood and a, uh, and a hose connected to a uh, air pump outside. And that allowed us to actually do some shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder training. Uh, we have some new people who needed you know, training in the lab, being shown how to work the equipment, and there's no way to do that without you know, being in close proximity to each other. Mm, there's some things that, say, videos or Zoom calls really just can't quite compare to. Right, exactly. And it had to be done. And uh, everyone was very good about trying new things out and working through uh, problems. And there were tons of suggestions from the, from the uh, staff at CDL. And uh, we were able to implement many of them. So 
we're recovering over 90% of our efficiency uh, these days as far as people coming in and working. We don't have too many people who cannot work uh, one way or another, so we're pretty proud of that. Now we're bracing ourselves. We seem to have a, another wave coming through, so we're, we're looking at how to keep people safe. Um, but so far we're doing okay. And it does sound like the protocols you've put into place, they sound like the sort of stuff which can, if it's necessary, be sort of wound back to a bit. So you can again go back to having, say, just one person in each of those HVAC zones. That's exactly what we're thinking because, of course, uh, if you have multiple people in an HVAC zone and one of them tests positive, protocol says, you know, the ones who shared the HVAC zone need to go in quarantine. So there's a loss of efficiency in doing that. So uh, that's exactly what we're looking at. So, so we can kind of scale these measures depending on how bad uh, the virus is uh, propagating through the community. Mm, makes sense. And it is really good to hear that, you know, even with the pandemic going on, we're not we're not necessarily losing all potential for this sort of science to keep going. No, we, we continue to make progress. It is slow. There's a lot of inefficiency built in and there was frustration, but I, I think people have uh, resigned themselves that, you know, you have to get done what you can get done during this time. And uh, we will we will get back to normal. And uh, as much as we can do now, the better. I could add that uh, NRAO has uh, invested in some, you know, some small amount in, in equipment to kind of help uh, do this. Uh, my own technician, who's very industrious, has found good ways to sort of bring me virtually into the lab with him. He has purchased some some uh, cameras and even microscope cameras and things like that with a USB hookup. And so I can call in on Zoom and he can share his screen with this microscope camera and I can be sort of virtually right there with him and, and actually working on some things. And that, that's been an interesting uh, alteration in how we work, but it, we've managed to work our way through it. So I can imagine. I had no idea that... Uh... I had no idea that microscope cameras were a thing, but I suppose thinking about it, it does make sense, especially in scenarios like this. It's going to be very useful. Yeah, Matt team, Matt's team is a good example of that. They were, they were creative before the pandemic, and when the pandemic came, they turned their creativity to things like that. It's been really great to watch. Well, speaking of creativity, I suppose we can then move on to basically what's what are the big projects going on at the NRAO right now? Uh, I imagine one of them is the Next Generation VLA. Uh, that's exactly right. That's our next uh, flagship telescope, and we're very excited about it. CDL has several roles to play in that. One of the most important is Matt's team, so I'll defer to him in, in just a moment. But as I mentioned, uh, CDL covers the entire swath of technology used in a radio telescope, so... Our electromagnetics uh, engineer is working on feed horns and the analysis of the antennas. You may know for a large array like that, the antennas represent about half the cost. So uh, you have to put a lot of time and energy into getting that right. We're working there immediately after that. Uh, Matt's team takes over and he'll talk about that. But we also have a team uh, working on the timing that's required and distribution of signals uh, now over a 1500 kilometer or so baseline. Uh, so that's a very difficult task, so we're looking at technologies and looking for partners in that. Um, our digital and correlator team is also working on an entirely uh, next generation of correlator that could be used uh, for the NGBLA. Um, so we're working across several fronts. And I'll let Matt talk about what he's, his team is doing, which is a real integral part of NGBLA. Uh, just before we go on to that, uh, might do a little bit of stuff for our listeners who aren't quite as familiar with the VLA. So 
start us off, VLA is a radio array. And I understand that the NTVLA will be quite a significant update in the number of dishes involved. Something like, it's currently got about 27 dishes, am I right? Right, so the VLA, um, I believe, just had its 40th anniversary. So it is uh, in, in uh, New Mexico, uh, and uh, I understand it's one of the most productive scientific instruments there's ever have been. It was a very important radio telescope, a reconfigurable array, baselines out to 20 kilometers or so. Yeah, so the idea is uh, to update the VLA. Um, uh, to complement all the other things going on in, in astronomy, to give us the uh, spectral resolution and the angular resolution, and to complement all the other things that are going in the optical and infrared world and, and space-based telescopes. Um, so we want milli-arc second resolution on that, um, and it, we want to use centimetric wave um, observations um, which allow you to do the things NGBLA wants to do, which is look at planet formation and astrobiology and the evolution of galaxies and things like that. Well, when you want that kind of uh, resolution and you want uh, that kind of sensitivity, you find yourself building some 250 plus uh, dishes spread out over 1500 kilometers or so. So, um, you know, the, the current VLA occupies a, a plane there of about 20 kilometers or so, so we're going to expand that out into, you know, West Texas <laughs> to the east uh, and up into Colorado in the north and into uh, eastern Arizona to the west. And there's even a plan to put some of these uh, antennas um, into northern Mexico. When you, when you start putting these baselines down on a map of the western United States, that's kind of the extent of it. And then eventually uh, the idea is to uh, make it compatible and connect it to the current VLBA, which is continental-wide, a 10-dish array, you know, to make a very large, array, a very, very large array, I guess. I'm not sure if they've coined a, a name for that, but they want in, NGVLA to integrate the current VLBA. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if the name wound up being the very, very large array. It sounds very astronomy. <laughs> Yes, it does. That seems to be the way they, they do this. Yeah. Okay. So heading back to what we were talking about before, a bit more about uh, what exactly is going on in terms of the technology. Right. And I'll let Matt talk about uh, his receiver team because they're doing a lot of very interesting things. Sure. So, um, yeah, the IRD group for NGVLA is focused really on the warm electronic packages. So, so as, as in most radio telescopes, there's a cryogenic front end, which is not our portion, but that feeds our portion, which is the rest of the warm electronics that take the amplified sky, signal, sky frequency signal, if you will, and uh, does all the down conversion and the conversion from analog to digital and the conversion from uh, copper to fiber to transmit the data off the telescope over these long, long distances. Um, one of the things, one of the driving requirements for an array of this size is that uh, the operations and maintenance cost has to be significantly less per antenna than it was for, for like the very large array. And so that sort of drove us to this modular design uh, where you can pack a lot of electronics into relatively small modules that you can hold, hold in your hand or or an assembly of, of those modules into a field, large field replaceable unit. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I think the IRD concept, this integrated uh, electronics concept was so important uh, to the NGVLA. So we're developing electronics. Uh, there was also a lot of requirement for a uh, very broad, broad instantaneous bandwidth. So we're developing electronics to digitize 
large swaths of bandwidths covering a, a range of uh, about 1.2 to 116 uh, gigahertz. And so we've sort of chopped that up into six receiver bands, and we're developing all the warm electronics packages uh, for that. Uh, and we, we look very uh, closely at replication costs because you, trans- you you multiply it out, and you're talking about uh, 10,000 modules or something like that to, to complete the array. And so we have to be able to mass produce these. They have to be uh, uh, maintainable, and they have to not consume too much power <laughs> uh, or, or generate too much self interference at the antenna. So those are the kinds of things that, uh, that we focus on. And so we're, we're developing the, the analog electronics. Uh, we're also developing some custom digitizers, uh, which is something I talked about in my talk, to help uh, digitize those broad bandwidths and get the data off the telescope as quickly as possible with the minimum power dissipation and the minimum risk of self-interference. If I remember rightly, one of your talks mentioned that you've been working on setting some pieces up so they can just be 3D printed. Uh, am I remembering that right? Right. Uh, we made a decision uh, about a year or so ago that there was so much going on in, in 3D printing and the advances were coming so fast that we thought we should uh, keep an eye on that field because we had not paid much attention uh, to it. So we, we started a basically a research and development or at least an investigation program uh, to look at where that technology is going. Now, you know, radio astronomy um, does amazing things. The signals uh, we chase are extremely weak. And uh, the, you know, over the last uh, 100 years or so, uh, the radio astronomy community has, has developed some very specialized techniques in order to capture these signals. Um, so the, the technology is so uh, specific to, to, to the mission of chasing these weak signals is that uh, e- even slight variations in performance or, or shape or reproducibility can have huge implications. So um, one of the things we're looking at is just the fundamental properties of some of these 3D printed uh, pieces. We hold such tight tolerances uh, and ask so much of our equipment because our signals are so weak. Um, that it really has to be spectacular. So much of our stuff is handmade, literally, hand-finished. So the question we're trying to answer is, will 3D printing ever get to the point where it can produce things uh, that uh, rival what we can make by hand? Or can they produce things in different ways that would make it advantageous for us to use 3D printing for something that we would normally, you know, build by hand? And you can kind of see where this might be a use, where Matt was talking about, economies of scale that goes on when you're building something like NGVLA. Uh, you're talking about tens of thousands of pieces. Um, it's impractical to handcraft all of those. Um, so if we could find some pieces that could be 3D printed or we could find that via 3D printing, we could, we could eliminate some things that we have to build. So I admit it's a bit nebulous on exactly what we're looking for from 3D printing, but um, there are such advances being made in materials and techniques uh, that uh, we think one day uh, it may be applicable to radio astronomy. So we are we are evaluating a number of pieces. We've signed a, a couple of uh, uh, memorandums of cooperation with some of the uh, some of the leaders in the field, and we think over the next five years or so, you know, there may be the possibility that three D printing will have a role in radio astronomy. Right, yeah, that's what I was thinking, especially when you were talking, uh, Matt, about you know tens of thousands of pieces being needed. 
I mean, the thought that they're all being made by hand is, that must be quite time consuming. I was going to say that a lot of the uh, technologies that go into these modules are sort of uh, derived from mass producible technologies. So we do a lot of uh, mimic chips, for example, that, that are made on wafers in quantities of thousands, or we do circuit boards, which is a big mass production industry already. We haven't in ourselves done so much of the uh, machine assembly, right? So we still have our technicians in the lab do manual wire bonding and stuff, but the designs are put together in such a way that they could then be put into an automated uh, manufacturing process, an automated wire bonder, for example. Uh, we haven't done a whole lot of that. We did some of that for the Alma telescope, actually, uh, was sort of our first experience with that. And it's something we're counting on quite a bit for the NGBLA, actually, because we just don't have the, the personnel to manufacture those kinds of things in that quantity. So our, our current plan really is that we, we build the prototypes, we test them, we characterize them, we do whatever troubleshooting we need. But then we do a, an external contract to a contract manufacturer uh, to do the automated assembly and the automated wire bonding and that kind of thing. Yeah, one of the one of the exciting things to keep an eye on within GBLA is it is such a large scale uh, that it presents whole new challenges to the observatory that we haven't had to face before, and I think that's part of the excitement of it. If you think about uh, you know now when you wake up and you have to repair to VLA, you might have a twenty kilometer ride out to the latest you know to the farthest uh, antenna, but if you wake up in Socorro and you have to repair uh, an antenna all the way across the state into Arizona. How, how do you do that uh, with 200 of those and a certain breakdown rate? How do you configure the logistics and how do you build your components so that the failure rate is so low that you're not just constantly, you know, driving across the southwestern part of the United States repairing things? So there's a there's a whole other aspect of operations and logistics when you build a radio telescope that large, which is, I think, really animating a lot of the uh, the plan and design of this. I can imagine. Uh, so in that case, when the sort of more distant stations uh, come online, they're still going to be maintained from sort of the, NR the NRAO central. There's not going to be sort of little local stations which look after them. I think some of that's to be determined, uh, but there will be a NGVLA headquarters in, in New Mexico, potentially in Albuquerque. Um, and they're, they're working out now exactly how you service all those antennas and how you um, uh, maintain them. And, of course, uh, the goal is to make them very low maintenance, uh, which is where Matt comes in. You know, he's integrating a lot of pieces that used to be separate, and we're hoping that uh, they, they're more reliable and um, durable uh, and resilient because of that. I think also it, it depends on the type of repair that needs to be done. So so like the modules we built, for example, you really wouldn't want to um, open them up and work on them out in the field, right? You need to have them in a clean clean laboratory with the right ESD protection, the right uh, kind of equipment and stuff like that. So I think our goal really is to make modules and have spares that we can deliver then to the to the field field teams, I guess, that would take them out and, and uh, replace them on the telescope. But the more delicate kinds of repairs inside the module would be done at a more centralized location or possibly back at the CDL in Charlottesville. So it's kind of like the idea of when something goes wrong in a particular module, you just swap it out with a replacement which should do exactly the same job and then take the original back home, figure out exactly what went wrong with it, if it's something you need to worry about more in the future, that sort of thing. Yeah, let me pick up on something Matt mentioned earlier too, which is another aspect of NGVLA that's interesting and kind of new. 
you know, up to this point, uh, at least for NRAOs, uh, you know, we've put our telescopes in in places with very little interference. You know, Green Bank Observatory, which um, used to be part of NREOs, actually in a radio quiet zone in West Virginia. Um, and uh, the VLA, of course, is in a very remote part of New Mexico, so there's not a lot of radio interference there. ALMA, of course, is on the top of a mountain in northern Chile in a very remote part of the world, operating at frequencies where there are there are practically no interferes. So, you know, you could get by without uh, dealing with too much interference uh, of commercial or other signals in, in your uh, observation path. Now, when you look at NGVLA, which would be spread out over that area I was just talking about, um, uh, you know, in the 2030s is when we think this will be operating. And, and you project all the advances that are being made in, in communications and RF technology, thinking about 5G, we'll probably be on the 6G or whatever comes next uh, by the time NGVLA comes online. Uh, and all the uh, satellite-based worldwide internet services coming online and car radars and all the things that uh, technology is bringing. Um, there's a great potential for serious RF interference. So um, Matt said one of the things this team is also working on is a series of receivers that can monitor the radio spectrum and within first step to try to mitigate uh, that kind of thing. So that's another aspect of NGBLA that's going to be new. Uh, that we're going to have to deal with and uh, some technology is going to have to be involved in that and some legislation and cooperation and collaboration with commercial folks and the government and things like that. So yeah, when you, when you start to expand the size and scale of these projects, um, you pick up whole new missions that you have to have to deal with and CDL is wading into that with uh, both feet and we're excited about some of those missions. Well, that also reminds me of something else that came up in the in the talk, I believe. So in the US, you've got some sort of protected radio zones, the radio quiet zones, like you mentioned, that uh, Green Bank's in one. Uh, but what also came up in the talk was uh, a dynamic radio zone, which is theoretically sort of the opposite of the radio quiet zone. It is, right. So, yeah, picking up from, you know, what I was just talking about, radio interference within GBLA is... Um, People have finally realized, particularly the National Science Foundation, um, you know, which is uh, operates the NRAO through a cooperative agreement and represents and funds a lot of the scientific use of spectrum, both from radio astronomy and remote sensing for you know earth science and things like that. You know that they and they have the mission to uh, take care of all that. So they realize that uh, the huge increase in uh, technology that's coming as far as wireless technologies, all the things I just mentioned, could be viewed as on a bit of a collision course with these passive scientific users. So um, they have started a couple of initiatives to try to figure out coexistence in the future uh, with the commercial and military and other expanding uses of these frequencies. With the passive scientific users, you know, we both must do our mission. They're both... Um, important. So we're beginning to start in the U.S. to have an um, uh, entity that would help collaborate and coordinate on all that. So the NSF is currently working on that. One part of that collaboration and vision for the future is a national radio dynamic zone, which would indeed be just the opposite of a national radio quiet zone. 
it would be an area where um, some geographical area, the size to be determined, where if you're developing new technologies um, on new frequencies and new modulation schemes and new powers, where you, you could bring it and operate it and test it out um, in, a, in an area where it would not interfere with you know, the existing infrastructure of communications and use of spectrum. So it'd be a safe spot, if you will, if you wanted to try out a new technology that perhaps was designed to operate in a frequency band used by someone else, but sense the spectrum and avoid interference dynamically or something like that. So you just wouldn't want to test that out in the open um, because it could interfere with critical infrastructure like radar or communications between aircraft or something like that. So you need a safe spot to test all this technology and to test compatibility. So there is a vision for a national radio dynamic zone uh, to do all that. And NRL would play a part in this, right? We would want to see how that technology could be used to be able to mitigate our RF interference that we anticipate. So so the National Radio Dynamic Zone uh, will be an area set aside uh, so that uh, users of the spectrum, both passively and actively, can come in and develop uh, the techniques and the tools and the mechanisms to share the spectrum in the future. All right. Okay, uh, I think to sort of wrap all this up, I'm going to go back to something which uh, Matt mentioned right at the start, since we we're talking about commercial use of radio. Why don't we talk about some of the commercial use that the NRAO is finding for its work? Yeah, many years ago, I think NRAO uh, uh, decided that uh, we, we develop a lot of these technologies uh, for, for our own purposes, but they actually have broader application uh, outside of radio astronomy. And uh, we're actually encouraged uh, by our funding uh, organizations to uh, to transfer our technology to a commercial use uh, whenever possible, whenever whenever uh, can be used, and so we started looking around and thinking about how to do that. And uh, NRAO created a tech transfer office to sort of facilitate that. And really, the first uh, most successful uh, implementation of that was a technology uh, developed in the IRD group called uh, reflectionless filters. This this was something that uh, we developed to solve a problem with the radio telescope instrumentation that we were building, but. Everybody, you know, in electronics uses filters. And so we kind of lifted our heads up and looked around and said, well, who else might use this? Well, a lot of people might use it. And so um, I was encouraged to uh, seek a patent for that and uh, did that. And uh, since then, there have been a number of follow-up patents uh, with improved, various improvements. And uh, we started looking around at uh, maybe trying to trying to sell them, see if somebody would want them to kind of help offset our own uh, budgets. Uh we were moderately successful for that, but we really weren't set up uh, as an organization to commercialize things directly. So we ended up uh, finding a partner uh, in uh, many circuits who has now licensed the technology and has made it uh, more widely available. And so that's been a very um, beneficial uh, partnership for us. And uh, we're kind of looking for the next technology uh, that that uh, might have a similar um, uh, broad application. Uh, some of the digitizer technology I talked about in my talk is is one possibility, uh, and we we've uh, patented a number of other things that that have come out of this as well. I think if you know a lot of people in this field feel like uh, radio astronomy is so specialized that that a lot of what we do it's hard to transfer to industry and in a lot of cases that's true. But I think really if we thought more creatively about it, I think there's also a lot of what we do 
has broader application, particularly at the component level. And that, that's really uh, where uh, we've, we've been able to do this successfully. So that's been exciting for me. It's, it's not something I expected to do when I joined NRIO, uh, but it's, it's been an interesting uh, sort of uh, aspect of my work that I didn't anticipate that I've, I've enjoyed quite a bit. And I've made some good contacts uh, at many circuits and, and other industries. And uh, they, they've been very uh, useful and, and educational for me, actually. I've learned a lot about a commercial world that I never, never ex- expected to be in <laughs> when I was going to college. So, I, it's, I've always thought it was really interesting uh, that when it comes down to it, a lot of sort of the cutting-edge astronomical tech, I think that while we're working with it directly, we often think, well, this is so hyper-specialized. This is so field relevant that it doesn't really have any impact on the broader world but i think when you look at it a lot of a lot of inventions which have come just during the course of other studies just during the course of working on things in science have ended up being something just really fundamental to the modern world i mean thinking of for example the moon missions the sort of technology required to say work on Make, on miniaturization, making things lighter so it can be so there's less weight for rockets to have to handle. I think like we're still seeing the impact of that down the line, although we might not even recognize them as being related. I think one of the interesting things about developing technologies like that is is people don't know they need them until it's available, right? <laughs> so so you develop something that they didn't ask for, and in a way it kind of forces you to rethink how you develop a system. It's like, well, now that I have this component that I didn't know I could have, how can I re-engineer my system around it to make a, to make a better system? And, I, and I've actually talked about that with many of our, our partners at many circuits, that customer education is actually one of their chief thrusts here. We think we have a great product, and a lot of, a lot of customers have caught on and said, yeah, I can really use this. Whereas other ones who, who are used to solving problems different ways uh, are still using sort of the traditional approach to, to, to system design and haven't realized that, well, you can re-engineer your system from the ground up with these new components. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the sort of broad takeaway from this is just, in all aspects, flexibility is key, isn't it? That's right, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both very much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much for having us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for that, Fiona. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other bits that we couldn't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Uh, I'll start us off this time. For my segment, I wanted to relate a little anecdote that I come across recently regarding the history of space flight, which has sort of just recently become relevant enough to tell on the Jodcast. Uh, maybe it's a well-known story, but I've never heard of it, so hopefully listeners can get a kick out of it. Uh, it's about Alan Shepard, who became the first American into space three weeks after Gagarin on 5 May 1961, which is exactly 60 years ago yesterday as we're recording this. Uh, so the spacecraft, which was called Freedom 7, was launched in the Mercury-Redstone 3 mission which was the third launch as part of Project Mercury. Uh, The previous launch, Mercury Redstone 2, which had put a chimpanzee named Ham into space, was marred by technical difficulties. The spacecraft flew too high, too far, and too fast, 
which meant that Ham experienced significantly greater G-force on re-entry than was expected and landed 60 miles from the nearest recovery ship so that he nearly drowned. Oh Ham was okay, oh. but the problems caused NASA to delay Mercury Stone 3 and miss out on beating the Soviets into space. So that's how that happened. Uh, but Alan Shepard himself had been chosen as the pilot several months in advance with John Glenn and Gus Grissom as the backups. But none of them were told which of the three would be in the cockpit until just a few days before the launch. Uh, so the initial plan was to launch on the 2nd of May, but that had to be cancelled due to some bad weather, and it was rescheduled for the 5th of May. Then on the day, there was all sorts of technical difficulties, um, and Countdown had to re be restarted twice, um, to first fix a failed powered supply unit and then reboot a computer somewhere. Uh, and as a result of that, Alan Shepard spent three hours waiting in the capsule to launch. And by the time that they were ready, the uh, coffee and orange juice that he'd had that morning announced themselves. And he reported that he desperately needed to use the restroom. Uh, but the, the crew refused because um, that would waste a considerable amount of time uh, because he was sort of bolted in there was a hatch that was bolted up and it would have to be removed and re-secured um, so just as the spacecraft was about ready to take off Shepard said that he'd simply have to relieve himself in his suit um, but at the time he was covered in all sorts of electrodes to you know monitor his vitals and all that um, and getting them wet would have would have uh, short circuited the uh, the system, uh, and so just in, in the middle of countdown, they had to power down his suit, and he wet himself, and that's why all subsequent manned launches have been fitted with uh, handy urine collection devices. Little fact, uh, <laughs> but wet as he was, uh, Shepard did make it into space. Um, the whole mission lasted fifteen minutes and twenty eight seconds, in which time. The craft had traveled 486 kilometers and was overall uh, marked as a success. So, uh, and Shepard himself, he went, you know, despite his embarrassment on the day, he went on to walk on the moon as part of the Apollo, Apollo 14 mission. And you may know him as the guy who hit two golf balls off the lunar surface. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's, that's the story I wanted to tell. Um, <laughs> it's really like, I, is this quite a recent, um, was this quite recently? made public because i can imagine it would have probably been not nearly patriotic enough at the time oh yes we yeah, got a man I... into space uh he may have wet himself but it wasn't because of it was scary <laughs> i suspect it's one of those stories that sort of came out later as people wrote their autobiographies and stuff yeah. you know we can finally let people in on on the you know secrets of, of, of the people who participate yeah, it makes but... sense i mean um I quite recently um, was reading up on some of the audio that was recorded in uh, on Apollo 11 uh, due to the quite recent uh, passing of Michael Collins, who was uh, the member of the team who stayed in, uh, in Apollo 11 while Buzz Aldrin and uh, Neil Armstrong went onto the surface. So he's probably the least known of the three, which I think is frankly a shame because at what the Apollo 11 transcript showed was that he had an absolutely amazing sense of humour. So at one point uh, they were 
describing a bunch of the features that they were seeing just from from the window talking about all the different like enormous mountains and craters they were seeing because well you know it's the first time they would have anyone would have seen the moon you know in that much detail huh uh but at one point uh, i think aldrin describes one of the craters as a big mother a big mother which uh, colin's response was come on now buzz don't refer to them as big mothers give them some scientific name and there was a uh, thing which I really liked was uh, when they were returning back from their time on the moon, just having a little bit of uh, chat with mission control. Colin's making the remark that we can see the moon passing by the window and it looks what I consider to be a correct size. <laughs> correct size. <laughs> There's also, this one might be apocryphal, but there is uh, the story that uh, he suggested that when Neil Armstrong walked onto the moon, what he should say rather than, you know, the famous line, was that he should say, Dear God, what is that thing? Scream, and immediately cut his feet. <laughs> that would have been such a bit of, you know, historical memory, um, the whole small heap for men thing. Yeah. They probably would have given the entirety of NASA like a collective heart attack, though. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> no, amazing. So yeah, it's I, probably... I love, yeah, I love reading up about this stuff, you know. Because, like... Yeah, you sort of forget that these, you know, big world historical moments, they all involve people and they all have, you know, personal relationships and all that. And also, like, reading up on all these very early space flight missions, there's some sense of all right, how just terrifyingly janky it all seemed. Like, they're all operating on using this technology that now looks pretty primitive and, you know, none of it was really worked out that hard. Like, I mean... You'd think having a urine collection system on the on the shuttle would be uh, would have been a basic thing. Considered, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would have thought so, but you know, somebody had to experience these things to work out. No, that we really need something like that. But uh, at the same time, I think there's something quite reassuring about knowing that you know, even when these people were going through this enormous world-changing event, they yeah. were still doing things like making jokes about how much spaghetti and meatballs they could get onto the lander for <laughs> the person on the next, the next mission. Apparently, uh, the point of reference suggested by Mission Control uh, was a shrew which can eat 12 times its own body weight in a day. A shrew That might be well. quite good for their, for their baseline calculations. <laughs> so, uh, meanwhile, in my end, this is something... Uh, quite recent, which is to do with micrometeorites. Oh. Which are more or less exactly what it says on the tin. They're very small meteorites. How small are we talking? Most of this stuff is sub-millimetre. Mm. So very, we're talking, very tiny. this is more space dust than any than anything which you'd see coming. Because mm -hmm. the Earth gets hit by meteorites all the time. Uh, with the trend that the larger a meteorite is, the fewer of them we get hit by, which is why we don't have some sort of like ridiculous extinction event every other month or something like that. You know, uh, just those really big ones are very rare. But conversely, this means the very small ones are very common. But it's quite difficult to figure out exactly how many of them we're getting hit by because they're very small. And it's not exactly like you can just stick a big net up somewhere because obviously you've got to worry about contamination from everything on Earth. How do we know this is a micrometeorite and not a 
a bit of rock of similar sort of uh, composition, which has been on Earth for the past several billion years. And it turns out one of the best ways to find micrometeorites and be fairly certain they are micrometeorites is to go to Antarctica. Because all these micrometeorites uh, get embedded in the snow when they land. And the rate of snowfall in Antarctica is fairly consistent. Uh, I believe it's something in the vicinity of uh, 2.6 to 2.8 grams per centimetre squared per year. And it's been fairly consistent over the last century. Uh, so we can assume that this amount of snow uh, was formed over this amount of time. So we can use that to go, okay, how many of these micrometeorites can we find in this uh, in this sample? There are still some contaminants because, you know, although it's not the most hospitable, people do still go to Antarctica, uh, to say the least, scientists. So you do have to worry a little bit about things like... Um, like little particles from from clothes or from other instruments, but uh, you can generally sort of pick out these micrometeorites uh, by looking for things like materials which we don't really see much of on the surface of the Earth. Because you get things like, uh, think your rare Earth meteorites. So the, uh, the infamous asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs, part of the reason we can trace back the year that happened, approximately, is because it left something of a coating of iridium. I see. Which is something which just doesn't naturally show up like in a sort of a concentrated layer on Earth. You can use like a similar thing for these uh, micrometeorites. And what they ended up figuring out was that every year uh, the Earth gets hit by approximately 5,200 tonnes of micrometeorites. Goodness gracious. Which sounds, it sounds like a lot, but when yeah. it's just that there are so many of them and they're all so small that we don't even notice them. Like, it would be sort of like, honestly, there might be some of them in your house for all you know. They're just masquerading as dust grains. Hmm. But I thought that was a really interesting just approach to go about it because obviously, you know, everyone knows about the flashy ones. For example, uh, the Chelyabinsk meteor that was in Russia and co infamously caught on many, many dash cams, uh, which I believe did stuff like shatter windows from the from the shock waves. Micrometeors aren't going to do that, but at the same time, they're going to represent a not insubstantial proportion of the population. And uh, by having a look at how they're composed, we can figure out where they come from. Yeah, that, uh, that's really interesting. I've never thought about it. I mean. Yeah, you, you never think about meteorites as tiny little specks of dust almost, but I guess it makes sense, you know, because we've planet drifting through space and it's filled with all sorts of debris. And there's, stuff. A, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of dust out there in space, yeah, so yeah. it makes sense that some of it would come through, and if it's that small, then you're not going to get things like, you know, spectacular shooting stars from something which is maybe a millimetre across at most. <laughs> yeah, that's really, really interesting. Uh, shall we move on then? Yeah, thanks a lot for that. Now, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for May 2021. As darkness falls, Leo, with its bright star Regulus, is lying fairly high in the southwest. Over to its left is a wonderful region of the sky called the realm of the galaxies. We're looking towards the heart of the Virgo cluster. 
Some of them are relatively bright and can be seen in a small telescope. They're Messier objects in Charles Messier's catalogue. Looking high overhead is Ursa Major with, of course, the plough, the two stars Merak and Dupe pointing north towards Polaris. If you follow the handle of the plough down towards the lower left and continue down, you come to the bright star Arcturus in Bhuti. Rising later in the evening over towards the east is the very bright star Vega in Lyra, followed by Cygnus the Swan. And these are some of the summer constellations we'll see better in the next month or two. The planet Jupiter. As May begins, and given the low horizon towards the southeast, Jupiter, rising at 0336 BST, around two hours before the sun, may be glimpsed just before dawn, shining at magnitude minus 2.2 and having an angular size of 37.44 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises at 0143 BST, about three hours before the sun, when its magnitude will have increased slightly to minus 2.4 and its angular size to 41.2 arc seconds. Sadly, its low elevation of about 20 degrees as dawn approaches will somewhat hinder our view of the solar system's giant planet. And now Saturn. Well, Saturn precedes Jupiter into the sky, rising at 0300 BSD at the beginning of the month. Again, a low horizon towards the southeast will be needed to see them both. It is then shining with a magnitude of plus 0.71, and its disk is 16.7 arc seconds across, with the beautiful rings spanning some 39 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises at 0100 BST, with a slightly increased brightness of magnitude plus 0.57, and a 17.6 arc second disk. We will have to wait a while to see this most beautiful planet at its best. Mercury. Well, this month, Mercury has its best evening apparition of the year. The planet is at its brightest, at magnitude minus one at the start of May. It then lies just below the Pleiades cluster in Taurus, having an angular size of about six arc seconds. From the third to the sixth, it lies within a binocular field of view of the 2.8 magnitude star Alcyon at the Pleiades cluster's center. Its greatest elongation east is on the 17th, when it stands about 11 degrees above the northwestern horizon, around 45 minutes after sunset. It will then have a magnitude of plus 0.41 and an angular diameter of just over 8 arc seconds. It then falls back towards the horizon, passing very close to Venus on the 28th. Well, Mars passed into Germany on the 23rd of April and starts the month with a magnitude of plus 1.56. It will be seen best in the west at an elevation of about 24 degrees soon after nightfall. Reducing in brightness to plus 1.74 by the end of the month, it will be still be visible in the evening sky until August, before it passes behind the sun in October. Venus. At the start of May, Venus, at a magnitude of minus 3.88, and having an angular size of 10 arc seconds, will only have an elevation of 6 degrees, at sunset towards the northwest. By month's end, its elevation at sunset will have increased to 11 degrees and its magnitude reduced very slightly to minus 3.85. Venus will grace the evening sky for the rest of the year 
and reaches its greatest elongation east from the sun on October the 29th, it'll be highest in evening sky at the beginning of December. Finally, the highlights of the month. On May the 13th after sunset, if clear, Mercury will be seen to the right of a very thin crescent moon. One might also spot Venus down to the right of the moon. On the 26th, on the late evening, there will be a supermoon. On the night of the 26th, the moon will be at perigee, its closest point to the Earth. And its angular size will be 33.6 arc minutes across, compared to the average diameter of a full moon of about 31 arc minutes. So 8% larger in diameter. As the moon is then as bright as it ever can be, it's called a supermoon. Sadly, due to COVID, one could not now fly to New Zealand or Eastern Australia, where at 1119 UT, a brief total eclipse of the moon could be seen. On the 28th of May, after sunset, if clear, one would be able to see Mercury at magnitude 2.3, around half a degree away from Venus, some 300 times brighter. Mercury presents a tiny crescent, but Venus a nearly full disk, both being within around 10 arc seconds across. May the 31st. Before dawn on the 31st, low in the southeast, Jupiter over to the left and Saturn above will be seen above a very thin crescent moon. On May the 2nd and the 18th, there are good nights to observe the hygienus rill on the surface of the moon. For some time, a debate raged whether craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know that virtually all are caused by impact, but it's thought that the hygienus crater that lies in the centre of the hygienus rill may well be volcanic in origin. It's an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit, in contrast to impact craters which have raised rims, and it's a close association with the rill of the same name, associated with internal lunar events. It can be quite easily seen to be surrounded by dark material. It's thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below, so that the overlying surface collapsed, so forming the crater. Ah, thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogashanu and Samuel Leske with the night sky where you are. Kia ora from New Zealand. This is Haritina Mogoshanu. And Samuel Leske. From Wellington, New Zealand. And here we are with the night sky in May 2021. If we look at the night sky long enough to observe changes in the patterns of stars, we notice that these patterns shift ever so slowly westwards. The reason for that is that our vantage point from where we're looking at the stars behind our solar system, our galactic immediate neighbors, that vantage point changes every day by about one degree. From Earth, it seems like the same stars come up every day about four minutes earlier. But that's not true for all stars. There are some stars that in New Zealand never set or rise. Their light just gets washed away by the sun when it rises. These stars move around in circles, and we call them circumpolar. The point that is visible from New Zealand around which stars rotate is called the South Celestial Pole. There are some stars that we never see from New Zealand, such as Polaris, the North Star, most of the Big Dipper stars, Cassiopeia, and so on. We don't see them here because they're hidden by the Earth. So if you ever buy a star, which you can't really do, and you wish to observe it, 
Here's something you need to keep in mind. Do you travel much around the Earth? Because, except if you are on the equator, where if you are patient and can spare a few months waiting, then you can see most of the stars in ideal conditions. Then everywhere else on Earth, there are places where you see some stars and you don't. And if you decide to move to one of the poles forever, then every night you will see all of the stars in your half of the sky and you'll never see the other half. So when we talk about what is in the sky in New Zealand, there are stars that are always in the sky here. These are the circumpolar stars. The bulk of them make up the beautiful big circle in the southern part of the sky. The most famous of them is the Southern Cross and the Two Pointers. Beautiful and bright, located straight in the Milky Way. If you ever get lost in New Zealand and you can see the Milky Way, just follow that and somewhere along the way is the Southern Cross. This works any time on a clear sky night from a dark sky location, which is about 80% of New Zealand. This time of the year, after sunset, the Southern Cross is up high, which means it's in a good position to observe. Around the Southern Cross is the famous asterism, invented by a bunch of Christchurch kids called the Frying Pan. The two pointer stars are the handle of the Frying Pan, and the stars in Centaurus that surround it are the pan. The Southern Cross, they said, is the fish of the Frying Pan. Maori call the dark patch around the Southern Cross that we know as the Colsack, they call it the flounder. So here you have the fish and the flounder in the frying pan. And asterism that we just mentioned is just like a constellation and it means a grouping of stars. But the word constellation is used now for the official sectors in the sky. So to describe everything else that is unofficial, asterism is the better definition. If you want to make the asterism of the walk instead of the frying pan, we use the amazing Omega Centauri globular cluster as the pointy bottom of the walk. Omega Centauri is also in a good position to observe this time of the year, finally. First identified as a non-stellar object by astronomer Edmund Haley in 1677, Omega Centauri is about 5,000 parsecs or 17,000 light years away from us and is the most massive globular cluster in the Milky Way, with a diameter of 150 light years across. It has about 10 million stars, weighing almost as much as the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. That is about 4 million times more massive than our Sun. Omega Centauri is visible with the naked eye. In binoculars and in a telescope, the bigger the better, the view. It is spectacular. What makes it very special, other than its lace appearance and size, is that at its centre, Omega Centauri is believed to have its own black hole. And it might have originally been a dwarf galaxy, just like the Magellanic Clouds, that has been eaten by the Milky Way. Following the Milky Way, in the constellation Carina, there is a hypergiant star, Eta Carinae. Eta Carinae is about 2,300 parsecs, or 7,500 light years away. It has at least two stars of a combined luminosity 5 million times greater than the Sun. For three days in 1843, it became the second brightest star in the sky. Brighter than Canopus, officially the second brightest star in the sky. Then faded away so it could not be seen with the naked eye. And finally, now has come back to being visible. And it is around magnitude 4 to 4. 
0.3, which means it can be seen with the naked eye if you know where to look. Better though, in a telescope, Eta Carina is spectacular. It has an orange tinge and there are beautiful nebulae surrounding it. It's one of my favorite telescope objects in the entire night sky. Eta Carina Nebula is also home of the VR25, one of the most luminous stars known in our galaxy. Two open clusters, both great in binoculars and even better in telescopes, are the nearby and nearby the Southern Cross, are the jewel box, which is on the same side as the pointers, and the pearl cluster, also known as NGC 3766, which is on the opposite side. They're both really beautiful open clusters, and you can see blue and red giants in those clusters when you look at them through the telescopes. Pearl cluster is also very close to Lambda Centauri, that is home of the Running Chicken Nebula, which is only a good object for astrophotography, and it's very hard to see otherwise, and you'll certainly struggle to see a running chicken. Right by the Diamond Cross, a good binocular object is the Southern Pleiades. These are also very high in the sky, and good that they are because the Northern Pleiades, also known as the Pleiades, are now very close to the sun, so we can't see them for a couple of months. And finally, by the False Cross in Vela, the Omicron Valorum Star Cluster, or IC2391. Only about 500 light years from Earth, and NGC2516 are also objects we look at on a regular basis, in fact every weekend at this time of the year. NGC2516 is also known as the Southern Beehive because it's thought it resembles the real Beehive Cluster, or M44. This proves once again that astronomers are really good at naming stars. The two neighbouring galaxies, the large and small Magellanic Clouds, are now a bit harder to observe because they are in the lower third each side of the axis that goes from the Southern Cross to Arcanar, also a circumpolar star. After sunset, of course, the large Magellanic Cloud is the patch to the west and the small Magellanic Cloud is the patch to the east of that axis. Just follow up a pair of binoculars and enjoy them. They're not so much visible with the naked eye, as you would expect, so we always use peripheral or averted vision to see them better. From Wellington's Botanical Gardens, or on a full moon night, you can just barely make them out. Now, because they are lower on the horizon, we are observing them through a layer of atmosphere, which is okay for visual observations, but not so good if you want to take deep sky photographs or astrophotography. As the Earth orbits the Sun, it also spins on its axis, obviously. The extension of this axis to infinity gives us the South Celestial Pole and the North Celestial Pole. The height of the Celestial Pole in the sky gives us the latitude that we are on Earth. The lower the Celestial Pole in the sky, the smaller the circumpolar region and the other way around. In New Zealand, the South Celestial Pole is at approximately 40 degrees in the sky, which is also the radius of the circumpolar zone. The circumpolar stars are always in the sky and depending how much moisture is there in the sky from your observing place or how much light pollution there is, you can enjoy very many of these objects all year long and all night long. Just mind that some of them will be lower to the horizon and others will be higher. The circumpolar zone is fascinating and I did a little bit of uh, reading on this one lately and if you have a circumpolar zone you can almost learn to use it as a clock for timekeeping especially here in New Zealand where it rotates clockwise. In very, the northern hemisphere, it ro handy. rotates counterclockwise, so it's, it's a bit harder. I haven't thought about that before I came here. However, the stars rotate in 23 hours and 56 minutes, so not 24 hours. So every day they shift a little bit. But 
they're very good and you can still keep the saw and buy them. The ancient Egyptians called these stars of the circumpolar zone indestructible and aligned their pyramids and temples with them. They also believed their pharaohs became stars of the circumpolar region after they died. So by aligning the pyramids to the pole star, the souls of the dead had direct passage north. Unfortunately, we cannot see those pharaoh stars from here from New Zealand as it just so happens that the north circumpolar region is hiding right behind Earth as observed from here. While the ancient Egyptians saw circumpolar stars as indestructible and imperishable, that was another term they referred to, um, they thought that the rest of the stars were unwearing. This is alluding to the fact that even though they had a longer path to travel than the circumpolar stars, the other stars still kept coming back from behind the horizon. The other part of the sky that we see from New Zealand is seasonal. There's a new book by a famous archaeoastronomer, Professor Anthony Aveni, called Star Stories, where he discusses seasonality as a common theme among constellations' myths. Stories progress as constellations move across the sky, he says. It's all about the stories and what we learn from them. We created constellations for discourse about moral issues and social rules, about affairs, both practical and spiritual, about our immediate needs and our wildest dreams. The sky is there to tell tales of moral significance for all of the cultures, he says. Here in New Zealand, Māori have even different names and stories for the same stars as they shift across the sky each season, occupying a different position as seen after sunset in regards to the cardinal point. The most popular of these seasonal constellations are obviously the zodiacal constellations. Who has not heard of these? The stars that make the zodiacal constellations are those stars that are behind the path of the planets in our solar system. Nobody knows for sure who invented them or what they looked like in ancient times, but we do know the Sumerians lived a rich artistic tradition that showed many naturalistic animals, but featured prominently lions, bulls, and sometimes scorpions. These same animals were pictured in the sky as the earliest zodiacal constellations, Taurus, Leo, and Scorpius. Their stars are three of the four royal stars, Aldebaran in Taurus, Regulus in Leo, and Antares in Scorpius. What's awesome about these constellations is that they're about 90 degrees apart from each other. A fourth constellation that completes the four Mesopotamian pillars of the sky is Aquarius, which is not in the sky right now. This time of the year after sunset, we can see the constellation of Leo in the mid-northern part of the sky, while Scorpius is rising from the west. Of course, the Leo we see is upside down to the Leo folks in the northern hemisphere will see. To the west of Leo is Cancer the Crab, with its famous opening cluster of stars M44, the real beehive as it swarms with stars. Uh, this cluster is about 577 light years away and estimated to be about 730 million years old, with an average magnitude of 3.5, so easily visible if you have a dark sky location. Also in Cancer is M37, it's another open cluster. Gemini is lying along the horizon waiting to set, so not in such a good position to observe much there. Though you can see the Eskimo um, nebula, planetary nebula. Leo is an amazing target for telescopes and binoculars. Close to the area south of the triangle that marks Leo's hips is M65, M66 and NGC 3628 which will be visible depending on the size of the binoculars. They're also known as the Leo triplet. 
also in Leo, M105. It's an elliptical galaxy, M96, another galaxy in Leo, lies about 35 million light years away. To the east of Leo is Virgo, home of the 3C273 quasar, which is a favourite observation target for us. Tell me more about that quasar. Well, it just looks like a very faint little star, but it's not. It's uh, what we call a blazer, which is an incredibly active, you know, active galactic nuclei, and it's blasting an enormous amount of energy out. So much so that we can see it as a little tiny uh, magnitude 12 star from 2.4 billion light years. Billion. Billion. Wow. So that light has been traveling all the way from that little starlight-looking thing for 2.4 billion years. And it's so bright, it outshines its its host galaxy. And I'll just add here for our listeners that you found it all by yourself with uh, our Dobsonian telescope. Well, with the help of a good, you know, software. <laughs> Still very impressive. To the east of Virgo is Libra, the scale reinvented by the ancients by reducing the claws of the scorpion to mark the autumnal equinox when the days were equal to the night. Since then, due to precession, the equinox now occurs in Virgo. Ironically, the two brightest stars in Libra still bear the names of Northern Claw and Southern Claw, Zubinel Genubi and Zubinel Shamali, a reminder of the former glory of Scorpius. In May, we have more hours of dark than we do of light, because it's after the equinox. If you're a morning bird, you must wait until 7am for the sunrise at the beginning of the month. I'm not a morning bird. No, well, we have the alarm goes off, which helps. And 7.30 at the end of the month. If you're a stargazer, which we are, then be happy, as sunset is very early in May. And the sun is going down about 5.30 at the beginning of the month, and around 5 at the end of the month. But that's not when the darkness falls onto New Zealand. It would take two more hours for it to be dark enough um, for actually us to really see these night sky treats. So only two hours later, she'll be able to properly see everything we want to see and, of course, photograph things. Speaking of which, here um, is what happens to the moon in May because we know the moon is a terrible light polluter and we don't want to have the moon in the sky when we do any kind of astrophotography unless it is astrophotography that relates to the moon, obviously. But we are happy for the moon's ability to keep our axis stable. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Also, there's a moon garden under construction, so um, that's going to be really, really beautiful once it's done. We'll have the the chance to walk through it at uh, full moon because what else can you do on a full moon? New moon is what you want to have for stargazing and that's on the 12th of May. So any two weeks around that date are good for observing. In reality, we only have about two weeks each lunar month to admire the night sky. A lunar month is the time between two successive syzygies, which is quite the word to pronounce and write, and it means the period of time that has passed, in our case, between two consecutive new moons or full moons. At new moon, the moon rises and sets with the sun, so it is on the same line of sun as the sun. The next traditional phase of the moon is the first quarter. I'm saying traditional because here in Aotearoa, Maori have their own phases of the moon. Every single day they count as a phase of the moon, which is um, absolutely fascinating. So they have anything between 28 and 32 phases of the moon. So imagine you have to remember all of these. Lucky we can only remember or we, we, we're only required to remember four or, or eight. So um, This one is um, the next one that we have to remember is the first quarter. And in May, this occurs on the 20th. And last but not least, full moon is on the 26th of May. Just a note, the worst 
time to look at the moon through a telescope is at full moon people. I'm just saying because um, people usually come to do stargazing when the moon is full. But if you must look at the full moon with your telescope, then with the eye that you're viewing the full moon in with your telescope, use that same eye once you've finished to look at one of your friend's heads and it'll look like it's disappeared. Good trick. A nice little astronomy party trick. Yeah, well, come and uh, we'll show you how to do this. It's, it's <laughs> quite fun, actually. The moon, when it's full, is really, really, really bright. It, it has the maximum amount of surface lit from the sun. And, of course, it reflects the light from the sun. What we do, actually, we put a moon filter. Actually, you had two filters on top yeah, of each other last them, time, yeah, right? Did it so work? Bright. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. so bright. It made the image a little bit green, but yeah. it was okay. Otherwise, it, it's a real strain for the eye. You, you have to wait another 20 minutes for the rhodopsin to, to form again, as if your retina burns momentarily. So you have to think about it. If you look at it through a telescope, at least do it at the end of the night. The full moon... It's nice to photograph through a small telescope or, um, you know, with a with a phone camera on a on an adapter or even by your hand if you can put your hand by the telescope. So it's quite cute. I mean, there are some things nice about the full moon. This time of the year, no naked eye planets are visible in the evening sky. Um, but if you wait until after midnight, you will see Saturn and then um, just a little bit later, Jupiter coming up. And that would be around one o'clock. And... Then just before sunrise, there will be the two bright objects in the northwestern sky. That's if anyone wonders, because we actually get asked, what's, what are those two bright stars in, in, the, um, in the northwestern sky? They are Jupiter and Saturn. Before we sign out, the constellation featured by Globe at Night in May is Crux, our very own Southern Cross. Get your observing hat on and help us measure the light pollution around the world. Of course, you'll have to be able to see the Southern Cross to measure light pollution, but anyway. We can show you where it is. But there's other constellations you can use if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. You'll see detailed instructions on our website or on globeatnight.org. All you have to do is count the number of stars you can measure from your street and compare these with the number of stars from Globe at Night's maps. There is a citizen science project where anyone can participate and make a difference while you learn your stars. So give it a go. We look forward to seeing your observations online. Until next time, Haritina Mogoshanu and Sam Lisky. We wish you clear skies. And keep safe so that you can always see the stars and always remember that we are made of the same stardust as they are. Thanks for that, Haritina and Sam. And now for the feedback. There was actually one piece of feedback I picked up from Twitter a little while ago, which I thought was an interesting one. So this is from Matthew Beadle, who's at M4FF on Twitter. While listening to the Jodcast, I always wonder how much more helpful it would be if there was an observatory on the dark side of the moon. No light, no atmosphere, no pollution, nothing. And I mean, honestly, I'd be amazed if this one hasn't been proposed before. Yeah, no, I've definitely, I've definitely heard it proposed before. Um, I know there's even been plans to, you know, uh, set up interferometry stations on the moon so that there's like very, very, very long baseline interferometry between uh, antennas on the moon and what's on the Earth. Yeah, I mean, it, for a bunch of reasons, it would be a pretty excellent sight. I mean, as well as the sort of the lack of atmosphere and pollution, which means we'd get a, a lovely view with our optical telescopes. Uh, we'd still have to worry about things like uh, cosmic dust. Unfortunately, we can't get rid of that that easily. But uh, that would already get rid of a bunch of the problems here.
including things like uh, atmospheric refraction. No atmosphere, or I think the moon technically might have a very, very, very thin atmosphere. So thin that it's basically not there. Yeah, I don't think when that would block uh, optical light in the way that Earth's does. No, absolutely not. Of course, the main problem with it is getting it there. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's that's sort of, you know, a lot of people are saying with the, the advent of like satellite constellations in the atmosphere and so on, which are going to really affect ground-based astronomy, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the next generation of telescopes and stuff should should be space-based or moon-based, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. And that's really a, a nice idea, but the, the problem is an engineering one and a cost one. Um, I mean, when I was talking earlier about uh, going back to the comments about trying to figure out how much spaghetti and meatballs they could get on the lander, and the reason they it was phrased as get on is because, of course, there's weight limits. Sending yeah. stuff into space is really expensive. It's incredibly expensive. So, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, if, if Elon Musk and his uh, friends want to pay us to put telescopes in space, I'll be glad to do that. But mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, it's between, so cost to get up there to start with, and then unfortunately, maintenance is a huge issue. Maintenance? I mean, yeah, that was one with, that was a problem with Hubble, wasn't it? One of the mirrors was incorrectly ground. Mm. Uh, and resulting in, you know, they'd just spent all this money to put this incredible space telescope up and the pictures were coming back really fuzzy oh, because there were issues with the, uh, with the sort of like the way that the, the glass had been polished. Mm. I mean, luckily they did fix it and we did get the lovely pictures that we get from Hubble today. They are, you know, they're about as good as they can be from what Hubble's capable of. But the expense of having to send a replacement, it's not something you can get someone out there to do. Yeah, you can't no. just go. Oh, it's okay. I'll call a technician. They can be out there and they can just replace it, and it'll take you know yeah. a week, a month. It's something that's going to need a lot of planning. Yeah, and if you, I mean, if you have any experience with ground-based astronomy, things go wrong all of the time. You basically <laughs> need somebody twenty-four-seven to monitor things and to fix cables and uh, you know networking and all that. So good luck is all I have to well, say. I think this is just. Like it's one of these things which, if we if we find some miraculous way of making getting the materials up there a lot cheaper, then yeah. you know there are a whole bunch of potential benefits. There are a whole bunch of problems on Earth which just won't exist up there because there aren't people. Yeah, or atmospheres. True. But uh, unfortunately, in the short term, I don't see it happening. No, no. For for the moment, we're stuck on Earth, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, what can you do about it? Just hope for the future, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as, as for other other feedback, we have had quite a few messages from people on all sorts of platforms, uh, you know, inquiring about the job cost and if we're still going and if we're all okay and all that. And uh, you know, just want to thank everyone for for their concern. We are all fine. Um, uh-huh. It means a lot uh, that people would be people are reaching out like that. It is unfortunately just a case of we are still not allowed in our office. Uh, we actually had our one year not allowed in the office anniversary party yeah. back in March. Yeah, it was the saddest party I have attended. <laughs> but, well, I don't know. I think we managed to get some, some fun out of it, but it yeah. was still... Yeah, a bit still, somber. Access to the building is still very limited. Yes. And... While we hope that's going to change in the near future, what with uh, the rest of England opening up, at the moment we 
are still recording at home and unfortunately that takes a lot more effort than setting everything up in our uh in our studio where we can just use our one recording setup to do everything at once yeah yeah and it is it's more difficult to organize people and get get new people involved you know so mm -hmm. uh, yeah now's probably uh can shout out that uh several of our fairly long time jodcast contributors uh, are either in the process of writing up finishing writing up their theses or have just finished in the case of some so uh Unfortunately, we're not in a great place to train new people, and a lot of our established jodcasters are very busy. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm in the process of writing up, and it just takes so much of your time. It's like really hard to focus on anything else. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, no, we, we do we do appreciate people inquiring, and we will try to, as things normalise, get the get the jodcast back work to normal. Yeah, I just would really like to thank everyone for how patient they're being with us. It's, yes, um, yes, I know it must be a bit frustrating, a bit disappointing to not know exactly what's going on. But um, we are just, as with telescopes in space, there's a lot of just sort of hoping for the future that things are going to be in a situation that we can move back to doing uh, the Jodcast on the regular. Well, we'll see. Yes. Fingers crossed, eh? Um, so, and if you do want to get in touch, um, definitely you can do so via the, the website, www.jodcast.net. Uh, Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And unfortunately, you still cannot send us post, or rather, you can. We're not too sure if it's being delivered to the building right now, and none of us are in to collect it. So if you'd like to send anything by post, uh, we really appreciate it, but hold off for another month or so at least, until we can actually reliably access yeah. our building. Thanks to Bert Hawkins and Matt Morgan for the interview. The editors were Tiamba Zeidenart and Michael Wright, uh, and the producers were Fiona Porter and Thomas Rainey. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan.